the great triumvirate of defilements, our greed, aversion, and delusion. And we talk a lot about these three as a, as a three, threesome. Um, but in our conversations, often um, greed and aversion kind of take the four. We talk about them a lot, and they're easy to um, understand and relatively easy to recognize in our experience. You're all familiar with them. You know, greed, that basic feeling of wanting something, the, the obvious forms of greed, of, of wanting to have something. Um, other kind of obvious forms, this is right. This is the way I like it. I, I, this is good. I, I want to keep this, that kind of thing. And of course, there are more subtle forms of greed that we're all also familiar with. The, the leaning in, um, expectation, um, even amusement can be a subtle form of greed. Even a, 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 the subtle kind of wanting to know or understand um, so that you know, greed ranges from the very, very subtle, almost imperceptible, to what we really fully recognize as greed. And just to um, to put out there, um, with both greed and aversion, this is true that there are the obvious and subtle forms. And my own approach towards the subtler versions is not to go digging for them or looking for them. Um, I continue to check attitude. I mean, that, that could be considered a form of, of digging, but, you know, just the kind of opening. Is there something obvious? But what I mean by digging is if, you know, you check your attitude and don't see anything in particular, but in your mind you think, you know, there's got to be some greed here. Let me find it. Um, so the, you know, the, that's more than I think is actually appropriate in a given situation because if we think that something is there and we go looking for it, we can construct it. So um, I just like to offer a guide for um, looking at, at defilements. You know, use suffering as your guide. If you are suffering there is a, a defilement operating and you know check in can you understand whether it's greed or aversion or delusion and if you're not suffering i mean if you're if you're with something and and you heard something like you know Sayadaw say if you like being walking out in the woods there's greed present and then you go well i'm liking this so where's the greed you know if you're not suffering over it i would say just check in and see if there's any obvious um, attitude around the walking. You know, there may just be simply the liking. Okay, you can recognize the liking, but not really feel that as suffering. Um, if my my trust is in the unfolding of this practice that as um, as our understanding deepens about these defilements, as our minds get more sensitive and more purified of the grosser levels of defilements, the subtler levels of defilements start revealing themselves as suffering. And that's the time to start 
looking at them as suffering. And I see this whole path kind of unfolding in a in a staged way. We we um, let go of larger defilements. We let go of major kinds of struggles of of difficulty by kind of taking a step onto something that we can we can we can hang on to. It's like we can let go of some of and the classic Buddha, Buddhist teaching on this is that we can begin to let go of sense pleasure by relying on the pleasure of meditation. And then we can begin to let go of the pleasure of meditation by experiencing the pleasure of insight. So we, we kind of, in a staged way, um, move through our path. So we, we don't have to think about trying to find the, the defilements underneath. I mean, definitely checking into the attitude, seeing if there's something obvious there. So aversion also, um, you know, the obvious forms of aversion, dislike, hatred, anger, rage. And then the subtler forms, you know, irritation, boredom, annoyance, um, hypervigilance. The notion of by paying attention to this properly, this will go away. So, at a deeper level, I, uh, I think I'm, I don't know that I've actually, this is not actually in the suttas, but I think this is, I'm quite okay saying this. At a deeper level, um, greed and aversion are both just simply tanha, forms of craving. The word tanha, uh, the Pali word for craving. Both forms of wanting things to be other than they are. So we talk a lot about greed and aversion and less, perhaps, about delusion. Delusion seems to come up more tangentially at times. Um, Delusion can arise out of greed and aversion. And sometimes people have asked that question. They said, you know, know, I, I see delusion as coming out of greed and aversion. And that's definitely the case. It can come out of greed and aversion. We have... Um, a particular perspective around greed or aversion, we see experience through a filter of greed or aversion. It's kind of like we having this this desire or this aversion uh, puts one of those lenses on us, and then everything we see is is about either you know, getting rid of the thing that we don't like or having more of the things that we like. And maybe that filter even then begins to land on other things and not land on things. We either see things or don't see things because of this perspective that we're, we're operating under. You know, we're, we're operating out of a sense of, of greed. And this is kind of a classic description in, in, um, in the Vasudhimagga. They talk about personality types. Um, uh, and three fundamental trajectories of personality types based on greed, based on aversion, based on delusion. And this just simply has to do with kind of what what have we been practicing <laughs> you know, a lot of. And so, you know, I land pretty firmly in the aversive camp. You know, that's been what I've practiced a lot of. And that aversive filter 
can, if I'm not aware of it, can kind of go with me wherever I am. I walk into a room and the first thing I notice is what I don't like about the room. And it takes me a little bit longer to begin to appreciate some things that I might like about the room. So the, the, this filter, it, that's a form of delusion, of not seeing things. So yes, yeah, so delusion can arise out of greed and aversion. Essentially, greed and aversion distort how we see things. And that distortion is the delusion. But delusion is actually more fundamental than that, than just arising out of greed and aversion. Actually, delusion is the ground out of which greed and aversion arise to begin with. If we didn't have delusion, greed and aversion would have no, no place to grow. And I'll talk more about that later. So another way to look at this is that delusion can exist in the absence of greed and aversion, but not vice versa. Anytime greed or aversion is present, delusion is also present. So Sayadaw offers a definition of delusion, and in, in one, in one um, interview that I had with him, he gave this Uh, definition. This is what I wrote down in my notes. Delusion doesn't mask the object, but it masks the true nature of the object. Another way to phrase this, which is in the Awareness Alone book, wisdom understands the natural characteristics of the object. Delusion covers up these natural characteristics. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong one. I'll read, it. I'll read that one later. <laughs> Delusion isn't complete ignorance. Delusion is not knowing the truth of what is. So delusion is not knowing yatabhuta, things as they are. Delusion is the lack of wisdom. I was um, watching a kind of a recent version of Shakespeare's The Tempest. And in watching this, I, I kind of caught a couple of really great quotes that related to delusion. And I went back to, the, to the, the play and routed them out. And here's one of them. And this, I think, relates to what Sayada is saying. So delusion doesn't mask the object. It masks the true nature of the object. Shakespeare's version of this, one character saying to another, he misses not much. And the other character responded, no, but he doth mistake the truth totally. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of how our minds work. So I'd like to offer some information about delusion, um, perhaps to help you see it a little bit more in your experience, to understand how it's formed, what kind of experiences it relates to. 
in Jack Cornfield's, I believe it's in his, um, The Heart of, his recent book, The Heart of Wisdom, is that what it's called? The Wise Heart. The Wise Heart, that's the one. (laughs) Why do wise and heart words are somewhere? (laughs) Um, He talks about three kinds of delusion, ignorance in three ways. And he puts these as basically not knowing, denial, and uh, distortion of perception. I'd like to explore these three, these three ways. So the first, uh, the not knowing aspect of delusion. This is this is kind of the the what is the most obvious form of delusion that we experience when we're not connecting to what's happening in the present moment. We are out of the present moment. We're, there's a lack of awareness. Not present, the mind is not present here and now. This is a form of delusion. When we're lost in thought, delusion is operating. Often in that lost in thought, there can be even a, a, a stronger version of delusion than just you know simply the wandering mind where we you know, wake up and recognize, oh yeah, lost in thought. At times, that lost in thought can be constructing a whole reality. I think I mentioned this the other day. A, a, a reality in which we're living and acting and functioning in our minds. And if we're not aware of that as simply a, a creation of the mind, when we wake up into it, we may believe what we have created. Did I mention the tiger? You know, the, the the tiger in the cave the other day. Did I talk about that? No. It's kind of like this is this is the painting our minds do. It paints this reality. And uh, the the story is this guy was painting a picture of a tiger in the cave, and you know he was right up right next to it and painting it, making it very realistic. And and then he stepped back from the the painting to see, you know, uh, how it was. And he got frightened and ran out of the cave. There's a tiger in the cave. <laughs> so that's that. That's that. That's what our minds do. Actually, it creates a reality and then believes it. And so that's a, a form of delusion. And that creating a reality and then believing it, I'll talk more about later because I think that touches into the denial area. Another quote from Shakespeare. Same, same play, The Tempest. They're, they're talking about somebody who's doing some things, you know, taking some actions in the world, and two characters are kind of talking to each other about what this guy's doing. And they say of him, This is a strange repose, to be asleep with eyes wide open, standing, speaking, moving, and yet fast asleep. <laughs> Again, a kind of familiar state. I think Shakespeare was a brilliant observer of the human condition. (laughs) Other kind of common forms of this not connecting, this dullness, this sleepiness, um, dullness, sleepiness, restlessness are forms of delusion. Um, just that when those states of mind are obscuring our ability to be present. 
of course, dullness, sleepiness, restlessness can all simply become objects that we are aware of, and then they're no longer functioning as delusion. They are just simply objects. The mind is aware. Oh, sleepiness is present. Dullness is present. Low energy is present. High energy is present if it's restlessness. And then doubt is another version of delusion. The mind that wavers, that can't decide, that um, can't connect to um, how to move forward. In the suttas, the Buddha describes doubt with an analogy of being lost in a, in a wilderness. And the mind state of doubt is that you take a few steps one direction and then think, no, that can't be right. And then you go back and take a few steps in another direction. Oh, no, that can't be right. So that's the mind state of doubt, of wavering, of vacillating. There's not the sense of understanding what's, what the conditions are, what the actual uh, situation is, and how to move forward. So uncertainty and confusion as forms of delusion. I've talked about working with most of these, the dullness, sleepiness, restlessness, working with being lost in thought, waking up into thought, all of that. Uh, I haven't spoken so much about doubt. And just to put this out here, I don't have a lot of, there's a lot of information to talk about with respect to delusion, so um, I don't want to go into a lot of detail about doubt and working with doubt, but the key with doubt is, um, the antidote to doubt actually, is sustaining the attention on something, anything. So if you find yourself in doubt, especially around the practice, and you recognize it as doubt, that's actually a, a big key. Doubt can be hard to recognize. You know, it, it, having this quality of delusion, it can masquerade as you know, wise thoughts of um, what to do you know, or, or what not to do. Oh, I shouldn't do that. Oh, no. And no, I shouldn't do that either. <laughs> or, um, you know, so the... the the doubt that is the wavering can be talking to us in what sounds like a very reasonable voice. And so it can be hard to, to discern sometimes. Oh, I shouldn't be practicing this right now. I should really be doing loving-kindness practice and not seeing that as a manifestation of doubt. Now, it may be that it is a manifestation of wisdom. So, you know, you need to, you need to check. <laughs> you need to kind of look into this. Um, so first of all, recognizing doubt as doubt is the biggest part of the, the challenge, the biggest part of the work. When we notice it as doubt, because it's delusion, it, com- it often completely obscures itself. It wraps itself in a cloud, and it's like, no, you're not going to see me. <laughs> so that, you know, it, it can be hard to recognize doubt. Delusions in general are hard to recognize. They tend to put a, it's like a magician, you know, swirling smoke around himself and making himself invisible or something. You know, it's like, 
not going to see me. It's the invisibility cloak. That's what it is. It's the invisibility cloak. When it's recognized as doubt, we have a chance to work with it. Just, oh, this is doubt. What does doubt feel like? And to sustain the attention on something. You just pick something. The second aspect of delusion that Jack pointed to, the denial aspect, I actually had to write him and say, where is this teaching that denial is a form of delusion? Because I couldn't find it anywhere. And his response was, I don't know whether it's in the suttas. I got this as an old teaching from Ajahn Chah. You know, that it was in his early training that he got this teaching. And so he couldn't point me to any sources for this teaching. So I decided to do my own reflection on denial. You know, what, how is it a form of delusion? I think typically when we um, explore denial or think about denial, we it, it's, it's often in the ordinary context related to either greed or aversion. You know, the classic denial is the elephant in the room that everybody sees but nobody talks about. That's kind of the classic form of denial, and often that's based in a kind of an aversion. You know, no, don't want to talk about that. If we talk about that, trouble will happen. Um, so that's, that's a kind of denial that contains a delusion, but it, it has aversion in it. So to me, you know, in exploring the teaching that denial can, I mean, that delusion can be present in the absence of greed and aversion, that's the kind of delusion I wanted to get down to. I wanted to understand that. Because, you know, we understand greed and aversion and how it's connected to delusion. So that's one of the classic forms of, of not wanting to see the truth. I mean, denial is basically a form of not wanting to see the truth. Another version of this that may be connected to greed, you know, the, the delusion in um, an early phases of a romantic relationship, of how this relationship is going to be perfect, and it's going to solve all your problems, and this person is perfect, and they are never going to do anything that will hurt you or make you unhappy. That's delusion, <laughs> and it is based in the, you know, the, a little bit in the, in the greed side of things. So in reflecting on forms of denial that are that kind of pure, this was my question, what, are the, what would be pure forms of denial that are unrelated to greed or aversion. I actually came up with uh, a connection or an understanding about this as being related to how views operate in our minds. Beliefs, views, assumptions. And we can call this kind of delusion, essentially, a kind of a personal or cultural-based delusion. Views that form out of our history, out of our conditioning. Views that form out of cultural conditioning. And because of those views, the denial in this kind of um, view, or this kind of, the denial associated with this kind of view is that when we have entrenched views like this, it's hard for us to see things that are not in line with that view. 
that view becomes a perspective, kind of like the perspective of greed or aversion I talked about earlier. That view becomes a perspective through which we see experience. Very hard to take in information to the contrary of that view when it gets really strong. And so that, that would be a form of denial. No, no, that's not true. This is true. So I want to explore different kinds of views in this terrain of personal and cultural views. So one um, might be views formed by being told something repeatedly, whether implicitly or explicitly. You know, kind of uh, classic in this regard is the message that advertising gives us. Happiness comes from getting what you want. We're told that repeatedly. Another form of this uh, cultural kind of view might be something along the lines of a view that I don't think I've ever had explicitly stated to me, maybe a little bits of it, but um, it just seems to be in the landscape of this country. America is the land of opportunity. Anyone who works hard enough can live their dream. So that becomes a view. And then if we ourselves find that we're not able to live our dream, we're working really hard, we either figure, I must not be working hard enough, or I'm a failure somehow. This... um, this kind of delusion actually leads to what we, you know, classic form of um, delusion in our culture around the privilege that um, those of us who are in the dominant majority have in terms of being able to live this kind of dream. Um, we, you know, this seems like a truth to those of us who are in this dominant majority. For someone who's not in the in the majority, there may be, um, you know, essentially this is the, the, what we could call white person's privilege. The, this truth connects to our privilege as white people in this culture, and the um, conditions of minorities in this culture completely different, and we don't see the difference. So this is, uh, the, the, the denial of this is essentially the not seeing the inherent privileges, those of us in the dominant majority, uh, the dominant uh, race have. So that's, that's a form, those are formations of kinds of views. Um, other kinds of views might be formed from misunderstanding information. Um, you know, I've given this example a lot, but it, and it, it seems to kind of convey what I'd like to convey about it, so I'll just use this example. When I was a kid, about five years old, I was in an art class, and we were learning how to draw apples and fruits and bananas, and, and um, 
when we were drawing the apples, um, the teacher came around and corrected us if we drew anything other than a perfectly round shape. She said that, that apples are always perfectly shaped. And we kind of looked at each other. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> and uh, one, my brother and I would have conversations about this at home. You know, can you, what does she mean by this? And, and one of the little boys in the class came in and brought a really lopsided apple <laughs> and put it on her desk. <laughs> he didn't say anything about it. He just put the lopsided apple on her desk. And my sense, retrospectively, you know, 40 years later, is that she saw that as, oh, that's nice, an apple from the student. You know, it's classic, you know, student giving the teacher an apple, etc. She did not comment, change her perspective on apples at all. <laughs> so th- this, is, this is a case where her view was so strong that she couldn't see that there was an apple sitting in front of her that did not conform to this reality. And, you know, I've, I've wondered about this my whole life. <laughs> how could this be? And I don't know how this happened for her, you know, what it, what it was that created this view for her. But one day in my kitchen, I seem to have interesting insights arising when I'm cutting apples. <laughs> One day I was in my kitchen and I was cutting an apple. And the way I tend to cut apples is to align it up so that when I cut it, it falls into two roughly, roughly symmetrical halves. Because the way apples grow, they are roughly symmetrical. And they may be really lopsided, but you can cut them in half so that they're pretty much mirror images of each other. And as I did that, you know, so this question had been in my mind for a long time. But as I did that, for some reason, maybe I was preparing a delusion talk or something. For some reason, the mind went, understood a possible way that that person could have uh, formed this delusion. Maybe she'd taken a biology class where they said something along the lines of the growth of natural things, the growth of objects, you know, the growth of apples is symmetrical. And she misunderstood what symmetrical meant and created this view about apples being perfectly round. So again, I don't know what was going on with her, but it did make me realize, or that understanding made me realize, that we can, in the misunderstanding of information, create views. And that those views can get entrenched as we, as we misunderstand information. Then a kind of more uh, deeper levels of views, views that form out of our own experience. So these other ones were views that were formed because of things being told to us or misunderstanding things that were spoken to us. Um, Views that form out of our own experience tend to be strong. They tend to, it's like, well, I experienced that myself. So I know for myself that this is true. So the classic story about this, um, the elephant and the blind people. Anybody not familiar with the story of the elephant and the blind people? 
You're not? No? no I, you don't know? Okay. Okay, well, I'll give you a brief version of it. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. I mean, you may recognize it when I start to, ta- to say it, but because um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story that's been in our own culture, but it actually is found in the suttas, which I think is interesting. The Buddha used this as a teaching story about views. Exactly, yes, okay. So now every, everybody knows this story. Um, so this is a, a, a kind of a case of, yes, there is correct perception. So each, each person that touched the elephant formed um, a perception. Okay, the elephant is like this, those who touched the leg. The elephant's like a post. Those who touch the side. The elephant's like the side of a, of, of a storeroom. Those that touch the tail. The elephant's like a broom. They're getting a piece of the information, and they're extrapolating incorrectly. So it's, it's a, a view that's based on incomplete information. So this is, an, uh, this is a way. It's based on our own experience. And because it's based on our experience, we, we think we understand the truth, but we don't realize we've just seen a part of the information. Just a small part of the information, a small part of what's there. Then there are views that are based on incorrect perception. Perception is a process, and I'll talk more about perception tomorrow. Um, Really easy for that process to make mistakes. It makes mistakes because it's just easy for our senses to be confused. It makes mistakes because we have views in place that incline us to see things in particular ways. A story about this from, um, I heard this story on the radio. It's a story of a woman who was raped and um, she was shown a lineup of people and picked somebody from that lineup as being the person who had raped her. And this, um, um, you know, she perceived that he was the person that uh, raped her. And when she looked into her memory, she saw that person. And this was additional confirmation for her that she had made the correct uh, assignment, the correct judgment about who had done this. You know, she, she picked that person out of a line, and then when her memories came up, that was the face in her memories. And years later, that person went to prison. And years later, DNA evidence confirmed that he was not the rapist. And they actually found the rapist. Um, so, you know, this, this whole notion of thinking that we're good at identifying faces, <laughs> you know, we're actually not that good. It's very easy for us to misperceive. And in this case, she formed um, views around it. You know, she convinced herself that she had identified him correctly because there he was in her mind. So we can easily misperceive so to, you know, I think this is a, a warning for us all. 
you know, that we can't necessarily trust our perceptions. And then the Buddha talks about views created from meditative experience, a variation on the the blind people and the elephant story, actually. Um, In one sutta, the first sutta in the Diganikaya, he speaks of, I think it's like 62 kinds of views that we're trapped in. And he, he says that pretty much any view of the nature of the world can be uh, found in one of these 62 views. And he, he, he elaborates on these and describes what are the conditions that, that are the, uh, the cause for the formation of these views. And one of the greatest... Uh, causes or one of the most frequent causes cited for the creation of the view is that they've experienced something in meditation that confirms that view. So something like um, uh, the world is infinite. (laughs) Somebody experiences the world is infinite in a meditation and comes back and says, this is truth. This is what I know for myself. My senses have experienced this through the meditative mind. Now, this is even more, more profoundly um, uh, hard to shake, these kinds of views, because um, the formation of these views is based on a deeper kind of perception, a deeper, more wise, in a way, a more clear kind of perception. And so those become very entrenched. And now to speak to the Buddha's views on this, because, you know, how how might it be that what we're practicing is not just another view? Um, The... There was a... There's a great sutta, one of my favorite suttas, that's actually given by a lay person, one of the reasons I like it so much. But, you know, everything that's in the suttas has kind of been confirmed by the Buddha. So, um, um, the lay person, this lay person was talking to various people, and, and they were saying, well, these are my beliefs, this is what I believe. And they were, you know, all saying, you know, oh, the, the, the world is infinite, only this is true, everything else is false. Or, oh, the world is finite, only this is true, everything else is false. And, um, and that, so direct contradictions of what each other was saying. And um, then they asked this layperson what his views were. And he said, well, I hold a view something like this, that all views are suffering <laughs> when they're clung to. And um, so, so what... Oh, Sorry, I missed a piece of the story. So after they all stated their views, he pointed out to them that they were, they were suffering because of clinging to views, that, that, that the views that they were holding were attitudes, opinions, and there they were fighting about them. You know, I'm right, you're wrong. And that, that clinging to the view was the source of that suffering. And hold, holding to that view was the source of that suffering. And then when they tried to turn it on him and say, well, you're just clinging to that view, he says, when views arise, I notice they are, essentially in Tejaniya's terms, they are objects. 
I notice that objects, when held to, create stress. So this is kind of a teaching on how this practice ultimately uh, leads to a dismantling of holding to views, a dismantling of holding to beliefs. And that could be a whole Dharma talk, so I won't go any further on that. So in this area of um, this kind of views, these views that are kind of formed out of our own personal conditioning, our own experiences, it's really helpful to, you know, just can we begin to explore what are the assumptions we're holding? What are the facts in the situation? And what am I assuming? What am I... Um, believing in the situation? It's a great question. What are the actual facts here? What do I, what do I actually uh, know? And to be aware that the actual facts that we know may be coming in through a distorted filter. <laughs> so, you know, we can only kind of uncover things a little at a time. What am I believing? What am I believing right now? begin to explore that question. When you're suffering, that's a good question to ask. Suffering is rooted in delusion and often some kind of view. So checking in. When they're suffering, what is the belief that's operating here? Then there's the relationship between beliefs and thoughts or views and thoughts. You know, views are often formed out of thinking about, we get experience and we think about them, so they're, they're, they're formed out of thought. But then when views become entrenched, they begin to um, condition our thoughts. So for myself, uh, I had an entrenched view of unworthiness, of myself as being unworthy. self-hatred and unworthiness, very powerful belief in my system. And um, the thoughts would arise that the the, the dominant thought of this pattern was really simple. It's like, you're no good. That was the the thought. And um, initially, that thought and the, the view, the belief, were just completely intertwined. There's no way to to distinguish that there was a difference between the belief and the thought. It seemed like the thought was the belief. But as I explored the pattern over a long time, (laughs) um, at some point I began to recognize that the thoughts are distinct from the belief. And that, you know, we can kind of actually... um, recognize when that belief is more or less strong in terms of how much we believe the thought that's coming up. So for me, this pattern of self-hatred and, of, and uh, unworthiness has been very deeply um, 
undercut. The thoughts still arise occasionally. They're, they're not coming up very often anymore. But I don't even, I don't even really have to, to worry about them too much because as soon as that thought is there, it's like it's the thought itself that's the habit. The belief has, it's like the belief and the thought were severed at one point. So there's, it's like there's no way for that thought to then hook into a belief. I think that's sometimes what happens. You know, thoughts arise just out of habit. We think thoughts a lot. The thought will come up. And because that thought has been habitually associated with the belief, the thought coming up will, will trigger into the belief or the view. But it's possible to actually undercut those views, to, to see that it's just a view. It's just an idea. That was my insight into self-hatred. This is just a thought. And the, in that, the belief in those kinds of thoughts was just cut. So beginning to look at how much do you believe certain thoughts? Sometimes we can, you know, be going along, we can, we can see thoughts come up, you know, judging thoughts, for instance. And it's like, wow, you know, I don't really believe that judging thought, you know. So notice, notice that there's a distinction between the thoughts and the beliefs if you can. I mean, just, um, that's a possibility. I won't say to do it. (laughs) It's a possibility that we can notice the distinction between thought and belief. And then the deepest kinds of um, delusion. What we could call like human delusion. (laughs) You know, the delusion that just comes with the package. These are the the, um, the 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 Buddha talked them as about as fundamental distortions of perception. And this is the other quote from from Sayadaw. He said, Wisdom understands the natural characteristics of the object. Delusion covers up these natural characteristics of the object, but it does not cover up the object. Perception recognizes the object. Delusion distorts perception. And so that we've been talking about that, but there's a kind of fundamental set of distortions that the Buddha pointed to. And these will be familiar to you. They are the distortions around impermanence, around suffering, and around not-self. That we tend to, in experiencing our world, see what is impermanent as permanent. We tend to see what is unreliable as a reliable source of lasting satisfaction. And we tend to see what is not self as self. So these fundamental distortions kind of come with the terrain of being human. Um, I think we're kind of born with these delusions. 
but we can see through them. And how greed and aversion arise out of these delusions. You know, the, um, the delusion, the delusion of, or the greed arises out of the delusion that there's something out there that would be reliable. And if I have it, then happiness will follow. So that's, you know, the, that's a, the delusion of being able to be satisfied, the delusion of seeing what is unreliable as reliable. And then at another level of that is that it feels like there's someone who needs something. That I need this thing to feel satisfied. I need this thing to feel whole or complete. The, um, the delusion around self is the, the bottom, the core delusion out of which all of the other defilements grow. The sense of self gets threatened and so there's aversion and greed to protect that sense of self. So that belief in the sense of self, that's the delusion. And that belief is what conditions all of the sense of needing to have, needing to get rid of. So this kind of delusion, it's the hardest kind of delusion to see through. And I think of these as layers of delusion, you know, the, the, the most obvious kind of delusion is the just not connecting, not seeing, not being present. And then we can start to see how we have been conditioned, the kinds of views and opinions and views that we hold personally. And these are the, this is the layer that, that can be harder to see. Um, and I think that the way we start to see through these delusions is through the practice, is through the continuity of awareness, through seeing experience, through watching um, what's happening in the world and, and having essentially our bubbles of delusion burst as we see experience unfold. Something about the continuity of mindfulness puts us in a place where um, uh, some of those perversions of perception, those distortions of perceptions, can't be quite as strong. So for instance, um, one, um, when you're, you're looking at some experience or seeing some experience, um, you may not even recognize that you have the delusion of permanence operating while you're watching the experience. You may not even have, you, you know, it may be that you have the notion of, yeah, yeah, I know everything's impermanent. But, but the, at a deeper level, there's a, a belief that what we're experiencing has some kind of permanence to it, even if only permanent for a few moments. And then through the kind of continuity of awareness, we actually see the thing disappear. And there's kind of a shock. It's like, whoa, 
That thing is just gone in a split second. I thought there was something there. And in that insight, we retrospectively understand that we had been deluded. So we, through through insight, essentially wisdom begins to, these characteristics, these the three the, the natural characteristics of the object that Sayadaw says, wisdom understands the natural characteristics of the objects. These are the three characteristics of objects that he's referring to. The truth of impermanence, the truth of unreliability, the truth of corelessness or insubstantiality or of not-self. So wisdom understands those truths. So when we see with wisdom, we uncover those delusions. We can't actually, I mean, we can, we can get the information, right? We can get the information um, through hearing, through reflecting. But it's not until we actually see, experience, that we deeply understand how that delusion operates in our minds. And then having seen that, we can begin to recognize that delusion as it's active. But often it's not until we've actually seen through it that we can begin to recognize, oh yeah, I'm, I'm seeing things as permanent here. There's a kind of a feeling that we have around it. You know, just the, the um, you know, having some chocolate, you know. It's quite amazing, you know, that the way the mind in having that chocolate will create the belief that this happiness is where it's at. (laughs) You know? (laughs) We can begin to see that once we've seen through it. So, one way to explore this, to begin to explore this, is to just begin by... You know, noticing where you um, are experiencing things as solid, as permanent. Notice where you are finding reliability, where you're finding senses of happiness. And not to try to say to yourself, delusion is present here, I've got to f- fix this or change this. Just get interested in how is the mind doing this. The mind is creating some sense of satisfaction here. That's interesting. Don't try to tell yourself, this is delusion, this is bad, this is... You know, that's, that's not the way the truth is revealed to us. It's revealed to us by being interested in what we are actually knowing, what's actually coming up in our experience. Observe what you consider to be self. What is it that you're taking as self? And again, not to, to try to stop it. or It's like watching the selfing process can be fascinating. You know, watching. Who am I right now? Who am I taking myself to be right now? I'm going from 40-year-old argumentative person to a two-year-old looking at deer in the woods, you know. The contrast, as we just get interested in 
what self is coming up right now? And we begin to see that there's no connection between these selves. You know, thought of our family arises and suddenly we're the daughter or we're the sister and we're like in this conflict with brother and then somebody else comes along and it's like, oh, and now I'm this person. We can begin to recognize that there's these different senses of self and there's not necessarily anything to do with each other. So I said this earlier, but I'll also kind of finish with this, is another way to become aware of delusion is to use suffering as a guide. When there is suffering happening, some form of delusion is operating. And that may not be your own suffering. It may not be, I mean, our own suffering we tend to use as a guide. You know, it's like, okay, I'm suffering. What's going on here? Suffering becomes a wake-up bell for us when we are suffering. But if you're moving through the world and noticing suffering around you, there may be some delusion operating in you, something you don't understand. So not, not to beat yourself up about it, but to get curious. Okay, you know, what's going on? You know, I did this thing and the intention was good. My heart was filled with a sense of wanting to help wanting to offer somebody something beautiful, something kind. And what happens is they're devastated. Is there something that we didn't understand? Something that needs to be learned here? Here's a story from This American Life that illustrates this kind of delusion. I'll try to tell it briefly. um, I don't have much time. There was an improv group that their their work was to um, create public improvisation that um, kind of shook people up, you know. And they hoped in a good way, you know. Uh, Like, you know, in on a bridge at three o'clock everybody freezes you know and whoever so there's like all of these people together in this thing it's kind of like a flash mob kind of thing right you know um so all of these people you know freeze and then people on the bridge who aren't part of the flash mob get this experience of kind of their just their perception getting a little shaken up a little bit so this is the kind of thing that this group did this kind of um um public art, improvisational art. And they decided to, um, they're, they're, um, they decided to have a gig, or they decided to have a, an improvisation around this band. They decided to give one, a band, their best gig ever, you know, to uh, find this tiny little obscure band and give them the best night of their life, the best, you know, performance night of their life. That was their intention to give them something really good, really beautiful. And so, you know, they all learned the songs of this tiny little band. They found they were coming to New York City and going to play in this club, and they learned the songs. And, you know, 50 or 60 people descended on this club who knew all of the songs of this band. And, you know, they were singing along and, you know, you know, 
really doing their part, acting the enjoyment of this um, this night, this this band. And then, you know, at the end of the evening, they all dispersed pretty quickly as people would, and um, and the band was like, wow, you know, that was great. You know, so there was that they had gotten something really nice in that moment. But this improv group has a website, and they publicize their uh, gigs, their 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 art, and so this description of this um, experience was posted on the internet and it in internet fashion got back to the group that this had been a creation it hadn't been based in reality and they were devastated you know there was a lot of suffering that arose around this and then not only that other people kind of you know, began to listen to the songs of this group and began trashing them. You know, so it had ripple effects. You know, publicly trashing them on the internet. So, in hearing this on This American Life, the the leader of the improvisational group said, you know, our intentions were good, but our intentions were good. And, And my heart just kind of broke, and I thought, you know, maybe you should look a little more carefully. You know, there's suffering happening here. What can you learn? And in talking about that, you know, thinking about it myself, I thought, you know, maybe this kind of art shouldn't be directed to individuals. You know, the other kinds of art they did were public. You know, it was like whoever happened to be walking through. That's a different kind of thing than picking some individuals and, and doing something like this. So that was one of my reflections on this. You know, maybe that's something you could learn about your art form. And uh, I'm talking to a friend about it, Actually, I was talking to Chris about it, and, you know, she said, the whole thing was based in a lie. You know, it was not based in skillful ethics. So that's another thing to be aware of. So we can have this notion of having, you know, offering good intentions, but not grounded in the truth, not grounded in ethics. So again, to look, what is it? So there's suffering happening around you. What can I learn? information that I didn't know before. Is there something that I can learn from that? So this helps us to uncover delusions that we hold, this kind of exploration. So I should stop now. Let's just sit for a few moments.